Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, so that means it's time for Bible study, and I'm excited to be with you all today. We are going to be looking at Daniel chapter 4 today, and this is getting good. I've really enjoyed this study. Um, I was telling a few people a few weeks ago that I've never taught Daniel, and so I was a little uh, concerned, worried that I would do it well, and I've really enjoyed it, um, and I hope you have too. We've gotten a lot of comments over the last few days about Daniel, and I think that it's engaging people, which I'm really grateful for. And so we're going to start off with a prayer, um, a few housekeeping items. We would love for you to join our email list. And so if you have not received a reminder email about this study, please do visit our website, stmichael.org RBS, which is Rector's Bible Study. So stmichael.org RBS. And you can email Meredith Rose there, add your name to our email list, and get reminders each week about what we will be studying and all of the links so you can watch live or watch on demand. And as always, if you're watching on a social media platform like Facebook or YouTube, we would love your comments. So please give all the comments that you want, say hi to your friends, ask a question, make a comment. I love engagement. And so send them our way. Um, and like I've said in the last few weeks, we're still separated, we're still quarantined, and it's a great moment for you to say hi to a friend. And so do that, let us know you are here. I love seeing who was there and making comments during our study together. Let's start with a prayer and we will get rolling. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, for the gift of life, and for the gift of love. Today we come to you and ask that you open us up. Help us empty ourselves of all the things that stress us, of things that weigh us down, those things that worry us. Let us make space for you. Make space for your spirit to fill us up. Let this next hour be a respite for us, an island in the middle of our regular life so that we can be transformed and changed. We can be inspired to live differently. We can be guided into your discipleship so that we become your hands and feet. We become your love in the world. We become your light in the darkest places. Today, as we gather for this study, we hold in our hearts all those who need your prayers most, especially all those who need your healing touch, that they may never feel separate from you, that they may never feel alone, that through us, your presence, your grace, your love lifts them up. God, we also pray for our world. Pray for those in leadership, Pray for those who help voice the need, the ever-growing need for change and transformation, that how we live may always move closer and closer to your vision for us. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Daniel chapter 4. Let's start with how we got here. So Daniel chapter 4 is building on the stories that we've already heard. And as I've noted before, and as some of you have noted as you've read through this, what we see in Daniel is not always the obvious arc of a narrative. Each chapter, in a way, almost stand alone. Um, they don't 
own perfectly. I think I uh, describe them as almost like jewels or pearls in a necklace. Um, they're connected, but they're not the same, right? They are individual, yet there is a thread that connects them all the way through. And I think that's important for us to note because each chapter can seem a little strange if we don't hold that in our mind. And so chapter four builds on the work that we were doing in chapters two and three. Daniel is back on the scene after having basically been absent in chapter three. Um, and yet we need to hold the stories that we heard in two and three together with this story that we hear in chapter four. In effect, chapter four is a second dream, right? King Nebuchadnezzar has all the lead Israelite leaders with him in Babylon. And he has continued to have dreams and is looking for those dreams to be interpreted. We saw in chapter two that Daniel interpreted his first dream. Now in chapter four, Daniel will be interpreting a second dream. In the middle of those was chapter three, where we saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego effectively live out their faith in a very courageous way. When Nebuchadnezzar said they had to bow down to the golden statue that was gigantic out in the middle of nowhere, they resisted. They said no. And their refusal to bow down to an idol, because they are Jewish, remember, and they are not to worship idols, their refusal to bow down to that idol threw Nebuchadnezzar into a rage. And so he turned up the fiery furnace, he threw the three of them in the furnace, and they were saved. And there's an important note to remember from last week. I had said that their faithfulness in God was not dependent on what God did. That is a critical learning for us. It is so hard to put ourselves in that position where our faithfulness continues, even in the face of tragedy or fear or any terrible act around us. Our faithfulness in God that is disconnected from whether we think God did or did not act is perhaps our goal. See, we are called into discipleship, right? We're called into God, but for many, I dare say maybe most people who are, call themselves Christian, that faithfulness is definitely um, conditional, right? When things are going well, things are easy, things are good, then it's easy to be faithful to God, right? Because obviously God has blessed me. But you see, God's blessings are not only those things we want. God can bless us in many ways, sometimes in ways we would prefer God not to bless us. Those blessings are blessings nonetheless. And if we make our faithfulness contingent upon whether we like or don't like the blessings God gives, we've really not quite gotten to a solid place. We've really not gotten to a place where our discipleship really matters as much as it could. Transformation in discipleship is an invitation to go beyond the conditional, to actually begin a process of faithfulness, of love that is unconditional, just the way God loves us. Whenever we think that perhaps God has done us wrong or God has done something that we don't deserve, I invite you to consider whether God's blessings are deserved, whether God's love is deserved, because we don't earn and really don't deserve any of that. And yet God loves us 
and blesses us and sustains us and supports us and walks with us no matter what we do, whether we deserve or earn it or not. And so that's really important from last week and in order for us to take it in to this week because chapter four is an example of God's presence and God's actions in a very different way than the first dream interpretation. All right, so that's kind of how we got there. And like I said, we've had a lot of questions. And so I'd love to hit a couple before we get into chapter four because they may help us as we move from the last couple weeks into this third week. So first one um, is about Daniel's faith. When did Daniel instinctively realize his faith in God or was it always a part of him? And that is a super question because, well, unfortunately the answer is, I don't know, but I'm gonna talk about it anyway. So Daniel's faith is one that I think grows just like ours does. Um, in the priestly class in the Southern kingdom of Judah before the exile. Now it's very likely that Daniel would have been a young person, maybe a teenager when the exile happened, but he was important enough, maybe a good student, maybe part of a wealthy family, in order for Nebuchadnezzar to take him along with the other leadership to Babylon. So once he reaches Babylon, he absolutely had the seeds of faith planted in him already. When challenged, I think it's apparent based on the story that his faithfulness really developed. And isn't that true? Now I've often said that it's really difficult for comfortable people to actually follow Jesus. Because if life is good, all things are clicking, and everybody's comfortable, then what do we need to be saved from? What really is faith meant to do? It's only when we experience difficulties, maybe even tragedies, that our faithfulness grows. You know, that adversity is what really helps our faith grow. And I've said to many people before, I would love to never have the kind of extreme adversity that really makes my faith grow. But if it happens, maybe even when it happens, I hope that all the work that I've done up to that point prepares me not to ignore the tragedy because being sad, being scared, um, experiencing that tragedy in an emotional way is just human. That, that is human nature. We can't prevent those feelings. But if we are well formed as best we can be, when those things happen, we are better prepared to understand that the painfulness and the tragedy is part of this life. It's not something that we need to seek to resist or to prevent or to even overcome in some um, oddly unemotional way. But instead, when we experience those tragedies, if our faith has grown in some intentional way up to that point, we will be pretty well prepared to weather that storm with God, because God never leaves us. God's always there. Whether we ask for God or not, God is there. And our faithfulness is hopefully mature enough to come through the dark times with God. Uh, we have a few other comments that I think are quite good. Doesn't God work on his time and not our time? And 
I think that that is born out of chapter three when the trio, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, kind of call on God in a sense, potentially challenge God to do something, which isn't really there in scripture, but I think it's okay to interpret that they weren't hoping to die. They were hoping that God would save them, but they also knew that if God didn't, that that was okay. Their faithfulness was sound, but God does act in that time to save them. That kind of story can be a bit difficult, confusing, disappointing for us when we experience something hard ourselves and then God doesn't seem to save us from the proverbial fiery furnace, then what? Does God not care to save us? Is our faith not quite good enough for God to save us? And on and on, and we can chase those rabbit trails very far and they can be damaging. And so it's important that we hold intention. The real rootedness of the chapter three story, which is faithfulness in God is not dependent on God's actions, or what I really should say, on our perception of God's actions. God's acting for sure, but the way God acts in two purposes are really beyond us. Sometimes those actions and those purposes make sense to us. Oftentimes they don't. And when they don't, we can look at a story like the fiery furnace and say, why did they get saved and not me or my loved one? And I think it's important that we really just hold on to faith without any dependence on God's perceived actions. That's hard stuff. It's hard stuff. And so Daniel's faith is likely growing as he has these experiences, the same as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we're going to see that their faithfulness is not perfectly well-formed even at the end of the exile. That's part of chapter 4's narrative, so we're going to get there. Um, and then lastly, we had a comment that I think is great. Michelle said that the book of Daniel stories read so similarly to Grimm's book of fairy tales in the sense that there's hyperbolic language, there are dramatic ultimatums, there's repetitions of bad situations, and there's always a learning. And I think that's, that's such a great observation because in a sense, there is a learning here. There is a learning here because these stories were not written in the moment, right? It's hard for us to just keep that in our mind when we read these excellent stories like the fiery furnace or when we're talking about moments when the dream is interpreted or Nebuchadnezzar goes off and becomes a wild animal. We can think that because of the way the story is written, someone's actually there writing things down, almost taking mental pictures of everything that happened so that they can record it as history. These stories are not meant to be history. Yes, they are historic in a certain sense. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was a real person and Daniel was a real person, all that sort of stuff. But the writers never intended this to be journalistic history, like we consider history. Instead, they really wanted, as their primary goal, to teach people, to teach the people in Jerusalem after the exile, and of course, to teach us. And so, yes, they can sort of seem like a fairy tale, but that's not an accident. The point of these writers is that we will learn something from the experiences of very faithful people in the past.
So great observation. Now let's jump in because I could keep on and keep on with a lot of these comments and I've, I'm sorry I haven't gotten to all of them. Um, they are so good and I love them. So keep making comments, keep asking questions because it helps me guide how I may teach different chapters or different sections of chapters. So we are in chapter four. The scope of today's lesson is in three parts. The first part is the second dream, Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. The second part is Daniel's interpretation of that second dream. And the third part is judgment and change. So we've got second dream, the interpretation, and then this moment of judgment and change. So this is gonna be good stuff. And I'm gonna read a lot of the chapter, which I don't always do and I won't always do, but this stuff is so good. Let's read it. So we're gonna start in chapter four, verse 10. All right, so open it up with me. Chapter four, verse 10, let's go. Nebuchadnezzar is describing his dream. Upon my bed, this is what I saw. There was a tree at the center of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew great and strong. Its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant and it provided food for all. The animals of the field found shade under it. The birds of the air nested in its branches, and from it all living beings were fed. I continued looking in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and there was, only, there was a holy watcher coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said, Cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from beneath it and the birds from its branches, but leave its stump and roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let him be bathed with the dew of heaven, and let his lot be with the animals of the field, in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a human, and let the mind of an animal be given to him, and let seven times pass over him. The sentence is rendered by decree of the watchers. The decision is given by order of the holy ones, in that all who live may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of mortals. He gives it to whom he will, and sets it over the lowliest of human beings. We'll stop there. This fourth chapter begins with that dream. And this dream is similar in some ways to the first dream. So there is a tree that grows tall, just like this statue with multiple metals grows tall in the first dream. And just like that statue, the tree will be cut down. The statue was, fall, was felled by a big rock this tree will be cut down, but the stump will remain and the roots will remain in the ground, which is a little different than the first dream. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knows that this tree represents him. He's probably figured that out. The whole chapter taken together is really like one long testimony of the king. So we will see from beginning to end in this chapter that Nebuchadnezzar is almost recounting the whole story. So even though he's speaking in this sort of first-person moment, he's really speaking in hindsight that this thing happened, then the interpretation, then the wildlings, then he came back and repented and was restored. All of that is being told at once. So Nebuchadnezzar is really looking at this in hindsight. So he kind of knows, and the way that this is written is true to his knowledge that this tree is really him. So Nebuchadnezzar has begun to lose his way. He's begun to be confused by power. Now, we're all familiar with the phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Here, we see that corruption writ large. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of an empire that in its region 
is the power and authority. Now, we know in our civilization class, in our history classes, that the Babylonian Empire, although really strong, was not the strongest in the world at this time, but remember the world was much smaller than it is now. For Nebuchadnezzar, he was the absolute power, period. Now, he was a strong person. He made lots of good decisions. He was strategic. But after a time of being in that role with absolute power, he's really been corrupted, absolutely. And we see that corruption begin to shape him. He begins to lose his way, lose his mind. We see that that absolute corruption has gone to his head. And this is one of those ideas that I think we can relate to. We have all in some way been in a leadership role, some more than others, but think about a time when you've been in a leadership role or have had some authority in a group and think about in that role whether there was a moment when you actually said something or did something that seemed very out of character. And maybe in the moment or maybe in hindsight you remember that that's not kind of who you want to be. That's not the person you want to be. And even though you're in this leadership role and you're responsible for guiding this group of people, you need to still anchor yourself in your identity, right? You can't let the leadership role take over. Put simpler, many of us on this video are parents or have been responsible for children in some way, maybe nieces, nephews. Being in that role, especially as a parent, puts us in a leadership role, in an authority role. And for those of us who've been parents long enough to have the God-given joy of raising teenagers, <laughs> then we know that at some point we cross a line. We know we overstep our boundary. We know that we hurt the relationship we have with our children because that authority, that leadership role, kind of goes to our head. And we really go over our skis, in a sense. And that authority gets a little too lazy and we forget who we are and who we want to be and who God created us to be. And we hurt those around us. In a sense, that's what's happening here with Nebuchadnezzar. But much bigger than any of us. Nebuchadnezzar has a problem with power. He's succumbed to the temptation of power in a big way. And he's got more control than he can handle, that he can manage in his own identity. And that becomes a big problem, not only for him and for his people, but it's a problem with God. That loss of connection to his own humanity, to his basic humility, has caused God to give him a vision. And now he wants to know what that vision's all about. So there's the end of the first section. We're going to get to the dream interpretation next. I want to encourage you to ask questions because there's only so much I can actually say in, you know, 55, 60 minutes. And so do help me flesh this out. If you've got a question, someone else has that same question. If you've got a comment, someone else has got that same comment. So be brave. Give me a good question. All right. Section two, Daniel's interpretation. So we've got we've got the interpretation of the dream that is stressful for Daniel. So let's take a look at that together. We're going to start with verse 19. Then Daniel 
who was called Belshazzar, was severely distressed for a while. His thoughts terrified him. The king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or your interpretation terrify you. Belshazzar answered, Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew strong, great and strong, so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which provided food for all under which animals of the field lived and in, those, and in whose branches the birds of the air had nests, it is you, O king. You have grown great and strong. Your greatness has increased and reaches to heaven, and your sovereignty to the ends of the earth. And whereas the king saw a holy watcher coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and its roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze in the grass of the field, and let him be bathed with the dew of heaven and let his lot be with the animals of the field until seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and it is a decree of the Most High that has come upon my lord the king. You shall be driven away from human society. And your dwelling shall be with the wild animals. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen. You shall be bathed with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals, and gives it to whom he will. As it was commanded to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be reestablished for you from the time that you learn that heaven is sovereign. Therefore, O king, May my counsel be acceptable to you. Atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged. Now we'll pause there. So Daniel knows what's going on and Daniel in the king's court doesn't really want to tell the king what's going on because as we know, you don't want to shoot the messenger, right? And if you're the messenger of bad news, the king might get mad at you. But King Nebuchadnezzar says at the very beginning, hey, Daniel, listen. Or Belshazzar, sorry, that's his new name. Belshazzar, listen. Do not be afraid of interpreting this dream, even if it's bad news. I need you, and I will listen to your interpretation. Which kind of frees Daniel up to say, okay, okay, king, here we go. So Daniel confirms that the tree is the king, and that he's strong and mighty, and yet his strength and his might is not his alone. That's the key. When he believes that everything that he has is because of his own power, God, the giver of all good things, will make sure he knows the truth by humbling him and embarrassing him and making him know true humility by taking everything away. This is really the key. This is the idea that the king is afraid of because he read between the lines and he saw that the tree was cut down. This is a massive theological moment in the book of Daniel, okay? So I want to really bookmark this. I want to really shine a light on this moment because it is critically important for us. You know, this idea that this was written to teach us something? Well, strap in because this is perhaps the teachable moment in maybe even, well, I really like the moment of faith without um, condition in chapter 3. Okay, so there's a good one. Here's the second one. King Nebuchadnezzar set himself up to be kind of this archetypal opposite of godly living, right? He is pushy 
and judgy, he's condescending and hateful, and most of all, he believes that who he is and what he has is of his own making. All right, let's parse that out a little bit because that's a big idea. Being pushy and judgy, let's start there. Being pushy and judgy aren't good, right? No one would say like, man, what great character you have because you're judgmental. No, being pushy and judgy are, aren't good, but they're kind of normal. I mean, I would say that there is not a person watching this video who hasn't experienced themselves being a bit too pushy or judgy around others. I certainly know I can be that way. <laughs> I'm thinking of the people who really know me who are watching this, they're like, mm-hmm. So, you know, being pushy and judgy, that's not good, but it's kind of normal. And we all know we probably shouldn't really be pushy and judgy, but you know, it is what it is, it's human. And so we identify when we have done that, we apologize for doing that, and we kind of move on, right? Not the worst thing in the world. But Nebuchadnezzar is not only kind of pushy and judgy, he's condescending and hateful, right? I mean, he is an angry person. He wants his way right away. We saw that writ large with the fiery furnace, right? Oh my goodness. He hated Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, wanted them to die, and not just die, but burn. His kind of hatefulness is wicked. And that condescension and hatefulness is clearly not godly, right? We can all know that. And I would say that many of us, although maybe, maybe we've had genuine hateful moments, we don't like that when that happens, right? It's an emotion, okay, but we don't want to act on hate, right? I mean, being hateful is just awful. And beyond just immoral, it's not godly. You know, whenever we speak ill and act ill toward other people, that is not at all what God wants. And we have to take hard, difficult actions very seriously. That hatefulness is, is a real poison. And we can find ourselves genuinely sick if we find that hatefulness becomes a driver of our actions in any significant way. Now, thirdly, here's the thing that is most difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Nebuchadnezzar believes that who he is and what he has is because of him. Okay. Belief that who we are and what we have is of our own making is a powerfully difficult concept for us to grasp. And especially those of us who are doing well in America, right? We have so many layers of identity that have been put on us to teach us that hard work and the use of our skills to achieve and succeed is everything we're supposed to do. And all along the way of our entire lives, when we have used our skills to achieve and succeed, we are congratulated for our achievement. We are congratulated for our success. And there's very little attention, if any, ever paid to the truth that God has created us with skills and abilities. And when we use those skills and abilities, we are only able to achieve and succeed because of God's 
blessing. Man, that's hard. That is a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. We've been blessed in countless ways that empower us to gain so much. If you consider that you're watching this, perhaps during a workday, on a device, using high-speed internet, in the comfort of some space, home, office, whatever, it is just about impossible for us to say that we are not very richly blessed and that we are not very comfortable. And ready for the hard stuff? Here comes the hard stuff. Hold on, hold on, here comes the hard stuff. What we've been given by God does not belong to us. Y'all, that's hard stuff. We don't like this kind of thing because we like to own our stuff. We like to own our abilities. We like to own our successes. We like to think that we worked hard, we achieved, we earned, we deserve, it's ours. That's just not it. I know that most of us think that way because the world has done a very good job of teaching us to think that way. And yet the Bible over and over and over again challenges us to understand that all good things come from God first. It does not undermine our agency. So do not hear me say that we don't have a choice. We have free will. We have a choice. We have agency. Choosing to work hard, choosing to improve ourselves, choosing to grow and to change, and choosing a path of discipleship that will ultimately transform us, that is on us. But the ability to do any of that, even the agency itself, is a gift from God. So, this moment for Nebuchadnezzar is a moment that should be impactful to us as well. And this has ripples for everything. Time, talent, treasure, every way that we treat people in our lives, every bit of generosity that we show, every time we think we don't have enough or we can't give more. I hope that we come back to this idea that we always have enough. We have what we need and we can always give something and we can always give more something because God's blessing on us is never ours to begin with. And it is out of that gratitude for those blessings that we do anything of any worth in this life. All right, (laughs) shake it out because that's heavy, right? That's big, so we're going to Take a deep breath because, hey, that is, that's hard stuff. And I want you to just sort of take that, put it in your pocket, ruminate on that idea over this next week. I even have a suggestion, journal about it in your discipleship journals, yeah. Pray about it daily with our podcasts, yeah. See, this is all good. It works to the good. All right, so I see that we've got a few ideas um, or a few questions out there. Um, Let me see. So I see a few people 
talking about the question of seven periods, seven years, seven whatever. I'm gonna get to that. Section three is when we're going to address what seven means and what time that is and how you might even translate that word from the Hebrew and the Aramaic and that sort of stuff. Um, I also see that we've got a question about, is it important to show faithfulness physically or mentally? Um, so for instance, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had all bowed down to the idol, but mentally knew that they were not worshiping the idol, would God have been displeased? Ha <laughs> ha, Tom. Good question. <sighs> Let me see. This is a good question because if we follow the logical line of this question, we ultimately come to a major, major issue, which is, does God actually want us to die for our faithfulness, right? I mean, yeah, there's, there's kind of what we think and what we do in small ways, but when the rubber hits the road, is martyrdom an actual hope of God's? Like, does God actually want us to ultimately sacrifice our lives for our faithfulness? <laughs> so, Tom, let's see, or everybody. Man, I don't really know how to answer this question. <sighs> Martyrdom is not against God's will. I'll put it that way. However, would God be displeased or disappointed in our ultimate decision not to die for our faith? I'm going to go with no. I mean, the real answer is I don't know. But I think God loves us so unconditionally that God understands when we make decisions that are ultimately in our self-interest and not perhaps purely faithful. I mean, if you want to get down to it, we can't ever do anything that is purely faithful. And so we're always on some kind of sliding scale. And maybe there are moments when we could have slid like 80 plus percent faithful in our actions and we stayed at more like 50 percent faithful in our actions. God's not keeping score that way. God understands that we are human and our, in our humanity, we are imperfect. And so we can never fully act in 100% faithfulness. It's just not possible. That, that is part of our human condition. If we could, what's the point of Jesus, right? If we could actually achieve perfection, 100% faithfulness, mentally, physically, actions, habits, everything, well, then what's the point of Jesus? Jesus came to show us a way to overcome the limits of our humanity, to really be in total communion and wholeness with God in a way that we cannot on our own. In fact, there was a question from two weeks ago that I never got to that maybe this, this is applicable. Um, the comment was from Karen to say, I touched briefly on this idea that God doesn't give us more than we can handle and she'd like to hear more about that. Okay, so let's, let's flesh out this idea altogether. There are two 
big common ideas that I think are super problematic. I would even say very bad theology. And you've all heard me say this before, but one is when we go into experience, pain, trouble, any of those sorts of things, people will tell us that it's part of God's plan. Or perhaps we on our own deal with pain and tragedy by believing it's part of God's plan. If you are experiencing something painful and tragic right now, I want you to hear me say, believing it is part of God's plan is just fine. I have never, not once, been in a moment of crisis where someone has said, well, I just, I believe it's part of God's plan and I've corrected them. Of course not. Because sometimes we simply need a way out. We need to follow some kind of light or hopefulness. And if that hopefulness is that believing your tragedy is part of God's plan, it's okay. It is okay. For those of us who are not in a personal crisis moment, I invite you to think about what it says of God that God would put tragedy on us. That's just not the way God functions. God's grace and mercy is the primary identity of God. God's love for us is where God's relationship with us begins. Yes, we live in a world that is imperfect. We are imperfect, and so bad things will happen. But rather than God causing the bad things or planning the bad things, God stays with us in those bad moments. God supports us, carries us, loves us through those horrible moments all the way. That's how God relates to us not planning the bad, but helping us get through the bad. And so in that same way, this sense of does God expect or would God be displeased if we somehow fell short of 100% faithfulness? I will actually flip to say God doesn't even expect that we can act in 100% faithfulness. And that gets me to the other bad theological idea I don't like, which is God doesn't give us more than we can handle. If that is true, then that means we can handle anything that is thrown at us, and not only can we handle it, but we actually don't need help because God doesn't give us more than we can handle, right? Wrong. Jesus came in order to help us handle a world that is unfair and is painful and seems to push us down, and Jesus offers us a saving way out. Eternal life is not just some pretty thing to add to our pretty things collection. No, eternal life is this promise that our world is not good enough. Our world is imperfect. And at some point, we will be made whole with God. So no, God doesn't give us all these bad things to begin with. And certainly the idea that God has given us more than we can handle is not okay. 
because God, we actually get, we absolutely get more than we can handle. And that's why God offers us a way out because we just can't handle it all. And that's the whole point of Jesus. I got a note, just not really a question or comment, and I'll keep it anonymous, um, from one of, one of our friends here who um, does Bible study with us. And they just said that they've had multiple family members contract COVID-19, and their fearfulness that they could lose their loved one, child, grandchild, whomever, was so very tangible. But listening and being reminded of the way God works and the promise God makes to us has been her kind of lifeboat in this fear. Um, And she said she had gone back and listened to Philippians multiple times um, over the last few months just to be reminded and renewed that God's faithfulness to us is real. And I appreciate hearing that because we all need that reminder. I need that reminder. I mean, one of the reasons I want to teach this Bible study is because I am imperfect and in my own imperfection need reminding all the time of God's truth and God's promise. And I hope that this helps all of us in some way remember the stuff we already knew, but we forgot because when the world gets heavy, it's easy for us to be lost in our grief and our fear. This, my friends, is our anchor. Learning together, really diving into these ancient stories is the way that we sustain ourselves through anything this world can throw at us. Okay, so let's hop on to the third section, judgment and change. So we've heard the dream, heard the interpretation, and now we're going to see its result. So jump in, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king said, Is this not magnificent Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling shall be with the animals of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. We'll pause there. Judgment has come to Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. We know from Daniel's interpretation that if Nebuchadnezzar didn't change his ways, God was going to pass judgment on him. And 12 months later, God does. And as we likely guessed, Nebuchadnezzar seems ill-prepared, right? 12 months later, he's walking around admiring his kingdom. Did you hear what he said? Is this not magnificent Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? I mean, as if to rub it in, Nebuchadnezzar has this supremely self-centered moment. And a voice from heaven comes, declares judgment that had been foretold in the dream. And immediately, 
Nebuchadnezzar is driven away from the city, driven away from his people, and driven mad to live like an animal for seven periods. And after the seven periods end, Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses. So we're going to read just a little bit more, and I promise I'm going to get to the seven. Look at verse 34. When the period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored the one who lives forever. For his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can stay his hand or say to him, What are you doing? At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and my lords sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are truth, and his ways are justice, and he is able to bring low those who walk in pride." Well, I don't know about you, but Nebuchadnezzar seems to have very much changed his tune, right? 180-degree shift here. So let's talk about how this shift came about. This scene could be considered punishment, but I want to say it's not punishment. This is judgment. There's a big difference between punishment and judgment. Nebuchadnezzar is driven away for seven periods. Now, I read seven periods because I read the NRSV. Some of you may have a different version where it says seven years or seven other things. Seven periods is the best translation of this phrase. It's really not years. And the reason that translating years is not quite right is because it indicates to us a specific worldly amount of time. And really what this word means is seven periods of God, I mean, that's kind of unclear, um, but what I really want you to know is that seven is used here not to distinguish a very specific amount of earth time, but to actually say that the amount of time Nebuchadnezzar was separated was the perfect amount of God's time. All right, I'll say that a little differently. The amount of total days, years is not important. What is important is that Nebuchadnezzar had a separation that was perfect in God's purpose to help Nebuchadnezzar repent and return and be changed. So this is indicative really of how the Jews began to understand the exile itself, right? So remember, this isn't someone writing down Nebuchadnezzar's words right at the moment. This is a story that is passed on orally for a very long time and then ultimately written down by the Jews after they've returned from exile. So, the Jewish people have begun to understand the exile as some divine moment that helped them make a change in their own lifestyle, practice, belief system, social order, you name it. The change is very universal. But they also understand that God does not seek to change through punishment or judgment. 
God actually seeks to change through grace and mercy, right? Grace and mercy is really God's biggest tool to help change both Nebuchadnezzar and us. Yes, the judgment here is important to note because it makes clear how the Jewish people constructed this story. But consider Nebuchadnezzar's time away, those seven periods. He had lost his mind. He was driven mad. And so being in that state of madness means he certainly couldn't have, you know, learned his lesson in order to repent. No, be very specific about how we read this story. God gave Nebuchadnezzar back his awareness, and then Nebuchadnezzar realized how far afield he had gone, how wrong he had been, and realized how graceful God is. That's really why Nebuchadnezzar shifts his behavior, shifts his identity, because of God's grace and God's mercy to end the period of judgment. Similarly for us, we are granted forgiveness and wholeness, not because we've earned forgiveness and wholeness, but because God's grace and mercy is for us. Even with our imperfections, even with our lack of faithfulness, God gives us opportunity for wholeness, for salvation, simply because God loves us first. That's a big idea. It is a very big idea. And we see it acted out here with Nebuchadnezzar. He is restored because God had decided enough is enough, over. The judgment has ended. And it's in that moment of grace that Nebuchadnezzar responds with powerful faithfulness, responds with powerful change. For us, I think we're invited to understand that our experience and relationship with God functions very similarly. Now, I do want to note that based on what I said about five, 10 minutes ago, God is not deciding when to put us into judgment. God is not deciding that we've just done enough that is bad and enough that is not faithful or enough that is hurtful, that now we've got to experience some kind of tragedy. That's just not how God works. However, the tragedy comes and we should understand that God works with us, on us, during those tragic moments so that when we are saved from that tragedy, either now or in death, that we can be whole with God. That's a, that's a hard lesson for us because we expect that God's fidelity to us, God's love for us, will save us from that car accident, save us from that cancer, save our loved one from that drug addiction, and on and on, perhaps save from a pandemic. And yet, that's just not really how God operates. That's hard because most of us in our cultural awareness 
kind of treat God like that cosmic vending machine, right? If we say the right prayers and we do the right stuff and we act in the right way and we say whatever, we put in the exact change. We'll get the thing out of the vending machine that we really want, right? We do all the right stuff. God will give us the thing we really want. That's just not how it works. And if we believe that's how it works, we will be very, very sorely disappointed. This is a big idea, not new for this Bible study, but one that we have to continue to wrestle with because it is so very countercultural. We know that when we hear Christian preachers, teachers, speakers out there in the world, they almost certainly don't talk this way. So don't take my word for it. Look at what the Bible says. See these stories. I invite you to consider the macro message of Scripture over time. Because don't just take a verse or a story or even a chapter of one book somewhere and say, that is how God acts. We need to take the whole. We need to see how God's actions over time have been both understood by imperfect human people and also the way that God in his perfection through Christ speaks, acts, and teaches. We, as Christ followers, as disciples, begin with Jesus. And if other things contradict Jesus, we got to go with Jesus. And that seems like the best way to end this. We got to go with Jesus. I like that. You can quote me. So I appreciate you all being with me today. Uh, We'll be back next week. We're going to be looking beyond chapter four. If you've got questions or comments, thoughts, after this study, especially if you're watching this on demand, feel free to add them to the comment fields right here um, because we will check these comment fields next week before the study or send a note, an email to Meredith Rose and let her know of your question and I'll make sure I can get to as many as I can next week. Y'all, I really love this time together and I thank you for being here. I hope you have a wonderful week. Don't forget, Our discipleship sermon series continues on Sunday. We've got daily podcasts for you, daily journal reflections for you, and we hope that you are using all of these opportunities to sustain and grow and change over these few months together so that we can move confidently together in the direction God has set for us. I look forward to seeing you next week. Bye, everybody.